0: And welcome back to... I told you it'd be a little clunky, didn't I, Shane? Yeah, you. you, fair warning you gave me. (laughs) Yeah, so welcome back. This is episode 53. So we just did a podcast and then we record the next podcast immediately afterwards. We just did Kathleen on. But this is the actual astronomy podcast, Objects to Observe in the October Sky. So I'm Chris and joining me is Shane and we are two amateur astronomers. And that just means that we do astronomy for the love of it. We're not professionals and don't really have any sort of professional background in astronomy and uh, doing this podcast is just one of the ways that we share our love for the nighttime sky and astronomy with you. And uh, I am uh, an astronomy facilitator at the local university non-credit outreach center. And so then Shane and I, we were just talking about getting together and doing one of those classes uh, in a couple of weeks. So I look forward to that Shane.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I always enjoy coming and talking to, uh, to what your classes um, I just like engaging with people that, in, that share the same interest or, or passion for astronomy. And and I, I just like talking about it, which is why we do this podcast or one of the reasons why we do this podcast. And it's certainly uh, one of the main reasons why I like to come out to your class and, and give a presentation.
0: Yeah. And, and so many, like, I just love the uh, questions and uh, ideas people uh, put forward. Like somebody was asking about universal time and its relationship to like setting up a telescope and, and actually doing astronomy. And so I really thought about that after the class this week and I was like, I'm going to, you know, create a little bit on that. So, uh, I made that up. And then, uh, you and I were chatting, um, you were actually uh, in conversation with, with one of our listeners who was asking about kind of like uh, inexpensive or, or how to get the most out of inexpensive equipment. And, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the people in my class, uh, turned out, uh, have uh sort of those inexpensive telescopes you can pick up at at like walmart or canadian tire or or what have you and um you know i always feel kind of bad about that stuff because often when you pick up an astronomy book or or listen to astronomers talk they'll they'll really badmouth those inexpensive telescopes um and i always think you know that's that's really a shame because because that person went out and spent their (laughs) their hard-earned money um maybe it wouldn't have been the telescope um that, that the individual giving the advice uh, would have recommended. But, you know, I, I really think it's a detriment to, uh, to building a relationship with that new astronomer when you come out and say, well, that telescope isn't very good or whatever. And, you know, really, um, you can make these inexpensive telescopes quite serviceable uh, pretty easily. And you and I have both done this and, and continue to do this.
1: Hundred percent. Like I, you know, you, you are right. Um, so there are some uh, astronomers that maybe look down upon uh, cheaper telescopes, but the truth of the matter is that these telescopes will still probably do eighty to ninety percent of the performance that a real expensive telescope will do. The only um, you know maybe shortcomings of a less expensive telescope is you can't use two inch eyepieces maybe, or in most cases the mount slash tripod are inadequate, um, which introduce a little bit of shake or vibration which can cause some frustration. But typically the optical part of the telescope, which is what you care about, actually performs quite well, even for yeah. the lesser expensive uh uh options out there. And you know, you've talked uh, well we've both talked a lot about your Mead eighty uh, adventure telescopes. Yeah the
0: 99 dollar telescope that yeah. I bought just a year ago. Yeah.
1: Yeah and, and also like the the classic telescopes that I um you know, somewhat fascinated by like, you can buy a very old telescope for, you know, a hundred dollars and they perform exceptionally well. So certainly, uh, I think we'll spend some more time talking about this at, uh, you know, during a future episode, cause it was a, a great question. It's a great yeah. point that was brought up by one of our listeners in a, in an email that we received.
0: Yeah. And just sort of to end on, on you know, one note is that, um, you know, even even with the higher end and more expensive telescopes, you often have to dig in and and do some modifications and figure out some stuff. Like for example, with the Takahashis we bought uh, over the past years, you, you have to figure out a way to get your two inch eyepieces on that. It requires uh, adapters. Um, like I got a mount uh, over the summer and uh, wasn't as stable as as I wanted, so you have to kind of. Uh, you know, get get that stability under control and and things like that. And, and you know, so whether you are getting a really inexpensive telescope or buying a more expensive telescope, well, learning how to make these adjustments are, are skills that are going to serve you well, um, regardless of how much money you have to spend on the telescope. And often people are disappointed when they go and spend all that money and then it doesn't work exactly as they kind of imagined. And, and I think few telescopes do work uh, sort of perfectly out of, out of the box, regardless of the amount spent.
1: Yeah, totally agree. Um, you know, we should maybe do like a, a challenge episode where we, we, we each get a $150 budget. Uh, and then we go out and plan how we would spend that if we were just getting started Okay, and then have a discussion around that maybe, or, oh, or pick a, a dollar number, you know, and then we can both do a little yeah. research and come back and see what we come up with.
0: Cool. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. And that might be your way of nudging me towards the topic for this month. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so so we're going to talk about objects in the nighttime sky. So October 1st, do you know what's happening on October 1st? Well, there's a couple things happening on October 1st. Uh, the first is a full moon. And not just any full moon. This is a, a very special full moon here in, in the grain belt. Yes, a harvest moon exactly i'm I get hungry just thinking about it yeah I, I need some wheat and cereal, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't because I don't eat that stuff, um so yeah, so we have the the harvest moon is happening on on October first, but then this month is is special because we actually have another full moon on the thirty first yeah
1: yeah do do we need a is it is it elvis's blue moon or is that? Is it's that that something, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But
0: <laughs> Willie Nelson, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's, the, um, it's the full moon that is the furthest away from the earth uh, during full moon. So it's, it's a micro full moon.
1: The opposite of a super moon.
0: The opposite of a super moon. So I'm trying to, like, it's not called that, but I'm calling it a micro moon. And I think we should start really invigorating people to go and observe the micro moons. And, uh, we'll we 'll celebrate those instead of the supermoons. so so that 's coming that 's coming up as well uh, on October first. We also have Mercury at greatest elongation east um, but we can 't see it I, I ran my astronomy software and it's it 's not really easily visible from uh, here i mean it 's too close to the sun, and uh, yeah, people should not try to go and look at it if they 're in the in the northern hemisphere. you know consult your planetarium software because It is, it, it remains darn close to the sun, too close for, for, uh, comfort, at least for me anyway. And I I think most people probably shouldn't go and look at it this time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's just not worth it. Right. You know, you catch even a little bit of that sun through a telescope or binoculars and you're likely doing permanent damage to your eyes. So stay away. There'll be other opportunities.
0: Yeah, there, there will. Um, But if people are in the, I think in the Southern hemisphere or on the equator or something, if you look at your planetarium software, you might, might be able to, uh, to figure out a glimpse, um, Venus though, on October 1st, Venus remains super high in the morning sky and it's just 0.09 degrees away, uh, from Regulus Mm. on, on October 1st. So, uh, it, that's kind of exciting so if you go out you uh look towards the east in the morning sky on october 1st uh you're gonna see um it's gonna i think it's just gonna look really bright because i think at 0.09 not 0.9 but 0.09 degrees it is so close that i think it's just gonna look really really bright that um, is so
1: close yeah like it'll look like one object probably right
0: i think so yeah. I think so. So I'm really hoping that it is clear on uh on Thursday morning to go and take a look at that. I'm I'm very excited. I'll I'll huh. report back. I know you'll be uh snug as a bug in a rug at that at that point in time. Oh yes. Yes.
1: <laughs> don't don't count on me for that
0: observation. <laughs> Although now, like don't you, you get up early to let your dog at like six fifteen or something, I recall, but um, it, it's probably still gonna be I mean the sunset isn't or sunrise isn't until uh seven o'clock on Thursday morning. So you might have the better part of an hour before sunrise. And that's going to be bright.
1: Well, Venus you know, and- the, the, the nice thing of, of an aging dog is she now sleeps in a little bit more. So oh. now it's like seven o'clock with this one. So. Uh Oh yeah. Yeah. But if I'm up, I will certainly take a look.
0: Yeah. Then on the morning of October 14th, um, you're going to see the bright moon next to Venus anyway. Um, and that would be still visible at, uh, at seven o'clock. So when you go to let the, uh, let the pooch out at at uh, seven o'clock on October fourteenth. Uh, sunset or sunrise won't be until um, I think about ten or twelve or so minutes after seven that morning here, hmm. and so you'll uh, you'll be able to see the moon and Venus uh, together there.
1: Cool. I'll yeah. definitely be taking a look.
0: Yeah. So then we got to move on to Mars. Oof. Very very exciting this month. Yes, 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 yes. And well, you know, it's, it's been
1: so good to observe Mars again. It's one of my favorite objects to look at. Uh, There's so much that you can see on there and we're just about to get into the best time.
0: And so what is that best time?
1: Well, it reaches its closest point to us on October the 6th and this is the closest it's going to be until 2035. So we've got, yeah. you know, 15 years until we have something, uh, or, or an opportunity to see Mars uh, as
0: close as it is right now. It And that almost makes me sad, like in this sort of yeah. strange way. Yeah. It has been so good, though. And I think some of the other ones are sort of close, but no cigars, right? It's kind of like, mm-hmm uh you know i think you were observing the uh the big opposition back in 2003 you were you were observing at that time as well i think yes yep and okay. i remember thinking oh you know but it that was a super low opposition so yeah it was close but it was so low i don't think the views were as good most of the time as as they have been this time
1: yeah. And, and, and really just to add some context here, while this is the closest it will be until 2035, every two years Mars gets close, you know, close to earth to make it a telescopic object. It's not like you won't observe it within the next 15 years. There will still be lots of good opportunities. It's just, this one's probably a little bit better.
0: Yeah. And it's happening now, uh, yeah. that, uh, that opposition point where, where we, uh, we kind of line up just sort of perfectly is, is on, the, uh, on the 12th and the 13th. Though it just has to do with, like I think they call it the uh, asymmetrical geometry of closest point to Earth and the angle to the sun. That means the opposition point is actually on the 12th slash 13th. So it's always about a, a week off, and, and that's, mm-hmm. just how, that's just how it goes. But it'd be minus, uh, magnitude minus 2.6 that night. Boy, that is bright for a planet.
1: Yeah. Especially such a small planet. Uh, that's outstanding. Um, you know, again, this should be probably on the top of everybody's observing list right now in terms of priority, get out there and see Mars as often as you can, while it's so favorable.
0: Yeah. And even just with the unaided eye. Um, so where is it in the nighttime sky right now? Maybe we should uh, touch on that briefly.
1: Um, what constellation is that in? Uh, I think it's in the fish. Okay, okay, in the Pisces?
0: Yeah, it's in it's in Pisces. So uh that's that's nice and high. And have you been out? You've been out uh I think you said the last thing you looked at was Mars the other the other day.
1: Yeah, like this week, this past week here the conditions haven't been the best um for the majority of the week, but earlier on uh we had a, a nice clear night that uh seeing was pretty decent. So I had the seventy-six millimeter out with the Q extender. And, uh, I observed Mars for about an hour and a half and it was just outstanding. Uh, you know, the polar cap was like a little white freckle, you know, on, on the planet. And, um, uh, some of the, the, again, those, some of those surface features were starting to pop out. The, the seeing wasn't quite as good as I would have hoped to really tease out more of that detail, but you know, that deep orange color. Um, you know, the, the white polar cap, it's just such a neat object to look at.
0: Yeah. When I was observing, I, I get up, I, I like to observe in the morning. There's, there's a few reasons for that. I, I find that the sky is, is pretty stable. And I, I also find that, uh, like I tend to really wake up at about three o'clock in the morning anyway, and, uh, might as well do some astronomy. And so, uh, the sky was not the most stable. In fact, observing in the in the 60, I could see it kind of stretch about uh, maybe a quarter of a of a Mars diameter in one direction, and then Ooh. and then go and stretch about a quarter of a Mars diameter a few seconds later in the other direction. It almost looked like a like a bouncing ball. You know? Oh, that's awful! Yeah, you could still see some some pretty decent uh, surface features there. So. Um, So Mars actually was at its closest point to the sun in early August. I think it was like around the 5th or something like that. It was at its closest point to the sun. So although it's been receding from the sun since that point, um, we've kind of caught up to it. So that's how uh, we've closed the gap. And that's why it's closest uh, to us uh, at this point. So um, and that might not sound ideal, but it's 30 degrees higher since it was back in uh, 2018 in that apparition, which was uh, uh, clouded out on Mars because there was one of those global Martian dust storms. I don't know if you, you were observing it much back in 2018 or not.
1: Yeah, I tried multiple times um, hoping to catch the dust storm dissipating, but it really didn't lift until well, well, well after opposition. Yeah. And even then it was still, I think that like, I think there's still dust in the Martian, you know, atmosphere, um, yeah, cause it, it, you could see a little bit of detail, but certainly not a lot. Um, but great point about the 30 degrees higher because not only is Mars close, but it's like relatively high in the sky for us Northern observers, which that's the real value. I think of this, uh, Mars opposition is that we're not having to look through, you know, some thick atmosphere. Mm-hmm. You and I kind of complained a few times about Jupiter and Saturn this year. Yeah. Uh, that it's nice that it's so warm. You know, we can observe them in a t-shirt and shorts. However, they're so low on the horizon that, you know, seeing often wasn't that great. Um, yeah. We should be able to avoid that with Mars.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's nice and high. It just and, and I also think it just, like it looks so beautiful up there, just even with your unaided eye. Like there's been... Mm-hmm there's been some mornings where I was really tired and just went out and I just looked at it in the sky, just without a telescope or anything. And I just kind of gazed at it. And then there's even been the odd morning, like Friday morning, I get up and I was like, Oh, I'll just go out and take a look with my And I'm like, I got to set a telescope up, you know, And <laughs> even though that, that was not a good morning for me to be doing astronomy. Cause I, I taught my class on Thursday night. So that's, that's sort of a later evening for me. And I've uh, been, I was telling you, I was taking a course at work last week. And so that was starting at eight and uh, yeah. So getting up at, at four, three thirty and doing a, an hour or two of astronomy wasn't uh, necessarily the greatest thing to be doing, but uh, you know, I uh, had some, had some nice views, had a view of the, um, this really isn't my notes or anything, but had a view of the uh, M42 uh, nebula, the Orion nebula and the sword. Orion sent you that sketch off.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It looked great. And like I mentioned in the previous episode, I'm excited for Orion. It's, it's one of my favorite constellations. Um, not just because the constellation is so prominent and one of the easier ones to kind of picture the, the intent of it being a hunter, but I love the objects in Orion. There's so many great nebula to look at and, uh, you know, bright stars and some double star systems. It's a fantastic constellation.
0: Yeah, so it's now really high in the morning sky. Like I was, I was kind of surprised when I went out at um, at four a.m. and and there's Cirrus, you know, mm-hmm. like high at mm-hmm. uh, at four a.m. You know, or getting high, and uh, and Orion is is really up there, and the Pleiades is like pretty much like overhead, like getting past the zenith point uh, at four a.m. Now, like it's it's pretty surprising considering when I was just seeing Orion peeking over the horizon there, uh, five weeks ago or six weeks ago. Um, you know, it was, the sky was pretty bright I was just sort of lucky to be able to even make out the the belt.
1: Yeah. Well, and we've touched on this a couple of times, but October is probably the best month to observe the winter constellations. Mm-hmm. Um, cause the, if, if you stay up late enough or wake up early enough, you can see Orion and, and really all of the other winter constellations, but, the temperature is much, much warmer, especially where we live. you know the probably the overnight lows lately have been anywheres from freezing to i don 't know single digits centigrade. But if mm. you actually wait until winter time <laughs> it 'll be a lot colder so october's a great month to do that type of observing as well
0: yeah, and I mean the other morning when I was hit it was it was positive eight um, and like it wasn't there really wasn 't much wind or anything that 's quite nice uh, don 't need to wear. Uh, gloves or a hat or anything, at least I don't. So,
1: Well, yeah. Um, and if you, if you wait until the time of the year when Orion is up in the early evening, it'll be 30 degrees colder
0: than that. <laughs> if we're lucky. If so. we're lucky. Yes. If we're lucky. So uh, if you want to find Mars, you know, the one thing I, I use a lot in my class is the uh, SkyMaps.com website. Um, and you can actually download uh, free sky charts there. They even have some, I'm not affiliated with them in any way. I just really love the work that they do. And there's like some books and other stuff that you can buy. I've actually bought some of the books in the past um, that they've recommended because I just think it's, it's a great um, organization to, to be putting out that material. And uh, they uh, try to teach the nighttime sky in a way by, by listing all the dates when the moon will be by uh, different things. And so uh, one of those dates is coming up. It's October 3rd and the Mars and the moon are going to be only 0. 0.7 degrees apart. So um, the moon is just going to be 0. 0.7 degrees south of Mars on that date.
1: Wow. That's a really close approach. A full moon is about half a degree. Half so, a degree so, yeah. so it's
0: just yeah, over. So that. it's
1: almost, yeah, exactly. So that's really, really close. Yeah. That'll be yeah. a neat, a neat observation.
0: Might be too close. I remember there was one of these yeah. back in August and, and I mentioned it to my class and, and a couple of people went out to look and they, they couldn't separate it with their eye. Oh, um, so it uh, might be best to see like in a binocular or something like that. I do push using the binoculars too, but I think for whatever reason, they just went out to try to, to, try to look at it without the binoculars. So that might be a binocular observation, but then you kind of know where Mars is and it, it should look pretty cool that night, I would think.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hopefully it's clear.
0: Yeah, but if you miss that one or if it's not clear, October 29th, um, this might be a slightly better opportunity. Um, So this time uh, Mars and the moon on October 3rd, the, the moon is just a couple days past full, but on October 29th, it's just a couple days before full and Mars will be three degrees north of the moon on that date. So um, that should be with Mars being, I think around negative two and a half uh, magnitude at that point, um, should be able to separate it. Three degrees should be far enough, but, uh, that I, I feel like that's one of those things people are going to look at and be calling in and saying, wow, did you see that? Cause that's going to be in the evening sky kind of around the time when people might be out for their final walk of the day or letting the dog out or something like that. I think people are going to take notice of that especially since um uh, seems like more people are aware of sky events since the uh since the comet neowise this summer.
1: Yeah, yeah, and Mars gets a lot of fanfare typically when it makes uh its close approach. Um so I imagine you know some news uh facilities will probably have some headlines about it in the coming weeks.
0: Yeah. I I did a <laughs> I did a news event this past week did I tell you about that? <laughs>
1: your astrology event
0: <laughs> yeah the, the local cable access yeah. had asked me to uh to come in and talk about the mars retrograde and and so i, I kind of knew that they might have thought that i was an astrologer but you know i thought well i'm, I'm not going to kind of leave them hung out to dry so the day of i made up uh made up an animation and it showed what retrograde was and i explained it all out to them explain what the opposition was which is sort of this this closest point between earth and mars um and and some other materials sent them like a hubble image of it and then and then i went in there and i could tell they were kind of like oh but we wanted astrology we wanted to find out about our love lives you know kind of thing. <laughs> and so i kept like steering it around and gave them like the uh the rundown on uh on Kepler using, uh, Tico's observations. <laughs> Got a little bit of a, a little bit of a blank stare there. <laughs> Try to explain Kepler's. I think it's the third law of planetary motion. Um, I, I don't think anybody had ever done that on cable access Regina before. So, um, I felt like I was, I was breaking new ground and will not be invited back.
1: <laughs> Who knows maybe, you know, the people will love it and, you know, you get your own science show.
0: I don't think so. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of science, I, uh, I see that Jupiter is still in Sagittarius. And uh, this morning I had an email from Dave Chapman, who's the former uh, Observer's Handbook Editor. And uh, I do a lot of uh, astronomy writing with Dave. And he had sent out a call for people to observe the Great Red Spot. And, uh, and pick like the, I guess that zero point of when it's at the middle uh, or at the meridian point on the planetary disk of, uh, of Jupiter, because that point always needs to be modified. And he was really kind of given software developers a hard time saying that they're not really keeping up with it. So I guess he must've been trying to observe the red spot and went out and the red spot wasn't visible and then it became visible. And he's like, well, the software's off.
1: Oh, interesting. Interesting. So
0: he had, so Dave is, I want to, and you know, we were talking about gas and we just said Kathleen, I'd like to get Dave on sometime to talk about these things. Cause he's uh, a fascinating uh, amateur astronomer and, and really takes this uh, to, to a, to a very intellectual place, but he was showing, he had like these plots that he had on a, on a graph. It looked like he printed it off. Um, showing where the software predicted and where, where it was, um, actually in, in relation to the software. So it looked like he'd actually been plotting it against his software.
1: <laughs> oh, well, good for him, you know, to try to make a correction there that, you know, it's yeah.
0: good. That'll help everybody.
1: Yeah. Um, the other thing too, about the great red spot is like, it's, it it's really vibrant. You know the the actual redness in it seems far more pronounced than it has in previous years so if you've never seen the great red spot this is a i think a great time to try to tease it out because it really it really stands out from the white cloud around it
0: yeah although one of the downsides is like we were saying with mars it's up all night now when it's at opposition it it basically is rising at sunset and and setting at sunrise and it'll be at its at its highest point more or less around midnight um, but Jupiter and Sagittarius there. Well, we're losing yeah. Sagittarius into the uh, evening twilight now, and and yeah. uh, Saturn's coming along behind. So we, I, I don't know how much longer they're going to be visible for. Um, probably another month. This is probably really it for them. They're going to be really, really low next month, eh?
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. It might even only be a couple of weeks before it gets into the you know, too low mess of the horizon and yeah, for we're here, just not maybe. looking anymore. Yeah. You're right. For, for as far North as we are.
0: Yeah. Maybe people that are a little bit further South, like in the States, they might, uh, they might get it. Okay. Until, till the end of the month. So, but, uh, yeah, we're definitely, it's definitely getting down there. So Saturn, the ring planet, have you looked at Saturn recently? I haven't looked at it in a few weeks now.
1: Yeah, it's been a couple of weeks for me as well. Um, now that now that Mars is so easy to see, um, you know that again, that's my priority one, and that gets all of my attention.
0: Yeah, but if people are looking and they want to identify, if they just want to identify uh, Jupiter and Saturn. They're not looking to do any kind of fancy meridian timings with the red spot or anything like that. They can actually uh, take a look on October twenty second. And the moon is going to pass just three degrees south um, of Saturn on this night, and Jupiter is just a little bit further to the uh, to the west on that night as well. So, uh, Saturn and Jupiter are there as, as sort of the brightest pair in the uh, you know towards the south, just above your southern horizon. Um, and on that night, they're going to be close. And then last Thursday, they were really close in the sky, though I think the moon was closer to uh, to Jupiter on the uh, on the evening of the twenty uh, fourth. Hmm. interesting yeah so uranus are you gonna to try to track it down or what
1: <laughs> well yeah i keep I, I, every time we do the podcast i'm thinking yeah i gotta take a look at neptune and uranus yeah and then i go outside and i completely forget that i'm supposed to look for neptune and uranus
0: and i yeah. just look at mars jupiter saturn yeah <laughs> but
1: i want to I, I need to remember to do this
0: yeah i know i'm the same exact same way um and there, I think Kathleen was talking about uh, hunting down Neptune with her binoculars.
1: Yeah, when she mentioned that, I was uh, I was impressed, and I yeah, never, you know,
0: that is tough. Yeah, yeah, because it's Neptune's magnitude seven point eight, but right now Uranus is magnitude uh, five point seven. It's in Aries, so it's it's fairly high um, in the sky, especially as we get into the overnight hours. Um, but if you want to find it, the best night is going to be October fourth, and you can mark your calendar. Because that night it's just going to be three degrees north of the moon. that would be a pretty good night to uh, try to hunt it down take a look
1: and and Aries is my my horoscope constellation
0: is it really like yeah. your adjusted <laughs> one or your actual one
1: uh well, I think my actual one I, I don't know maybe my i don't know
0: <laughs> because so so like according to the astrologers um I'm a Sagittarius because they don't factor in precession and the wobble yeah and stuff yeah but but i i actually ran the software for the the day and time i was born and so the i was actually born under the 13th sign Ooh, <laughs> so i'm going to off you can te- technically speaking right? <laughs> i was i was well, I, I
1: guess i should run run the simulator too to see where the sun was when i was born
0: yeah so you you'd be one constellation to the west or right at least so oh, okay okay maybe you'd be like a, i don't know What's maybe like Pisces or something like that? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> you're you're probably not surprised to to discover I was born under the thirteenth sign. So. Yeah. Well, hey, big shocker there. <laughs> if if only we believed in astrology, that would mean something. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. We we digress. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. So and Neptune is in Aquarius, the Water Bearer. Uh, I really like Aquarius. Aquarius is one of those constellations that has grown on me over the years. And in par- well, I never really thought there was, I never really thought it was that interesting. There is an interesting object there, which is the Helix uh, Nebula. I think it's mm-hmm. NGC 7293. And you and I have looked at that lots. It's a huge planetary nebula. It's the closest one to our solar system and it's larger than the full moon in the nighttime sky. So that's, that's fantastic as far as nebulae go. Um, but there's a series of stars there and and Aquarius, um, is the water bearer dude. And, uh, he's got this, um, it's like a cup or something like that, or, 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 you know, whatever, whatever it is, the vessel that holds the water and it's kind of tipping. And I always like that, um, asterism that, that forms the, uh, The water jug. I think it's what it's referred to in, in sort of the constellation lore. Um, and then there's a series of stars down below it, which are supposed to represent the water, you know, and I always think like these sort of mythological allegorical, like whatever's, um, you know, really don't have as much meaning as, as maybe they actually do. So I was out one night, it's at a really dark site. And, uh, I was just looking, I just like that, that, uh, that water jug, I think it's a neat uh, asterism, my wide field telescopes, I can get the whole bit in. And, and I noticed though, that those stars down below, because of the ground effect, it was in the autumn and the ground had been very warm that day, but the evening was really, really cool. Um, it was almost causing like these visible waves in the sky. And so the sets of these stars, there's like three, three, three and three or something like that. There's, there's a, quite a few uh, sets of these three stars. Um, and they were like, almost like waving, like how waves do in a river. And I was just like, Whoa, that is really cool. I was just like really kind of taken, taken aback. So although we don't believe in astrology, um, sometimes there's, there's very much to do with the, uh, perhaps the, uh, construction of the constellations, uh, and the myths around them. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think there, there maybe is more to, uh, the actual stories um, that earlier peoples have uh, have created around around the stars. Then, uh, um, you know, well, then the then the astrology uh, is applicable today. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. The the mythology and the how how people have perceived the night sky is fascinating to me, and, and the mm. the stories that have been told um, very very interesting.
0: Yeah, well, I and one thing I did I don't know if I told you this, but uh, you know, like I was I was saying before we start this podcast, I'm, I'm tired. I've been doing a lot of things at work and doing a course through work, um, doing a lot of, uh, some astronomy writing, uh, working on these podcasts, working on my astronomy course that I teach. And, and somehow I found time to attend a, um, indigenous, uh, astronomy symposium as an mm. attendee. And, uh, so I was listening and, uh, and watching, um, yeah, I think it was on Monday and uh the person who was who was the main speaker was Sean Wilson who is a uh, uh a Cree scholar from uh from Manitoba originally though he's had associations with a wide variety of universities uh, around the globe from Norway and is now at the Southern Cross University uh down in Australia and uh he was talking about um you know indigenous sky knowledge and uh you know, uh, sort of, uh, learning that and, and all the, uh, all that goes, goes into that. It was just so, so fascinating, um, to listen to just, you know, and and a lot, and and it's funny, like I was listening to Kathleen speak in her last episode and she was talking about like a relationship with the object in the sky. And, uh, and he spent a long time talking about, uh, the relationship, uh, that people have with the nighttime sky. And, uh, you know, I felt it really spoke to me. Like one of the things you and I talk about is kind of, you know, the really going out and the doing of it, and it's not like this simple matter for us. We we put a lot of time and effort into it, and uh, you know, we really have ever respect for the sky and and you know the nature of it, um, and and much of what uh, Sean was speaking about with the uh, with the indigenous astronomy um, was very much of a similar. Um, path um, where it is about the respect for the sky and the people that have come before you and their observations. And that, which is very much, I think uh, of a similar mentality, you know, I, I was like, yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I have respect for the sky and, and the other people who observe it and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Anyway, I just thought that was really interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. That, that sounds interesting.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to put some links up in my website for my class for that. So Let's see. October 21st, we have the Orionid meteor shower. Now, do you know much about this meteor shower?
1: Mm, Is this the one that has, or or is renowned for having those, I forget the term, but the meteors that come straight at you? Because there's one meteor shower that has typically has more of those than, uh, than um, a lot of the other meteor showers, but I'm just guessing. So.
0: I think it does. Um, they do, they definitely like, I'm just kind of very quickly, um, cause we're, we're riffing here a bit, but I'm just looking at the images uh, pretty quick, but I, I think that you are correct there. And
1: maybe I'll just elaborate a little bit on that. So like typical meteor shower, the, you'll see like what people refer to as shooting stars. You'll see streaks of light, the meteors uh, burning up in the atmosphere. And, uh, they, you know, they'll travel across a portion of the sky um, the or- Orinids or Orionids, um, are, are, well, I think they're renowned for these like straight on meteors that, that don't flash across the sky. What they look like is a point of light that gets bright and then just fades right away. And, um, uh, it, you know, it really looks like a star essentially brightening up and then fading to, to yeah. nothing. And that's because the meteors are just coming straight into the atmosphere. They're not cruising across the atmosphere.
0: Yeah. And uh, yeah, just looking at some photos here online like, while you're chatting. Um, yeah, it definitely does. Like the, the tails are pretty short and um, they, they actually appear to almost be coming in from one direction and then kind of end pointed straight at the camera kind of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of neat. But now these meteors, they're called the, um, the Orionids. And they appear to come from. I think it's just to the left, or just to the east of uh, Betelgeuse in the constellation of Orion. So, uh, if you kind of look up anywhere in the general vicinity of Orion, um, the constellation, then, then should, people should be able to see them. Eh?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you know? What the. The rise time is of the moon that night because the moon will will be out, uh, or at least not new moon. So that well, it's could coming, Spoil it
0: a little bit. Yeah, it's coming into full. So um, this is going to be an early morning event for you, Shane. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> it's funny, like it's like it's like the yin and the yang. I'm I'm the morning observer, and you're the evening observer, right? Yes. Like, like as so that as you're messaging me, and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to bed. Yeah, like, <laughs> and then I texted you the other morning and I said it's Mars o'clock like four thirty or something <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah and that's why my phone is on do not disturb while I
0: <laughs> yeah I only did that after I found out it was on do not disturb but I just I just thought it would be funny if you get up yeah <laughs> I think it was around four thirty. I I texted you yeah yeah I was at the telescope when I did that <laughs> like, no joke I just thought that would be funny um, I love observing in the morning, though it's so much fun. Let's I'll take see. your word for it. <laughs> another, you know, another really interesting fact about the uh, Orionids is uh, they originate from Comet Halley.
1: All oh, right, yeah, that is so interesting. you can
0: actually see bits of Comet Halley, even though it hasn't really been by since I think it was like 1984, or 1986, or something like that. It was I was I was a little kid. Uh, my parents took me out to see it, but I don't remember. I was like, great sky i saw a star i'm like okay i saw it and turned around and went back to bed or something my dad says he saw it but uh yeah i i don't remember anyway yeah so uh because the the most of the meteor showers originate from uh from comets one way or another and as the comet goes around the sun just like we go around the sun leaves a bit of a trail of particles about the size of a grain of sand or, or a piece of dust or grain of salt and then as we kind of sweep uh, through the, the old, uh, uh, comet trails, then, then we pick these, these particles up and that's what we see.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of neat when you think about how these things originate, um, you know, they're not only are they kind of pretty to look at, but you're, you're seeing some remnants of a comet. Yeah.
0: So what are you going out as for Halloween this year? And don't say a giant virus particle. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was thinking of maybe, uh, an amateur astronomer.
0: Oh, that's a good idea. I'm yeah, going to yeah. go as the full moon. <laughs> <laughs> it's the full moon that night again. We have two in the same month, and this is the micro moon.
1: The micro moon. Oh, it's geez. not
0: officially called that. I in, in keeping with our made-up astronomical or no astrological theme, <laughs> that that most of the, the astrology is just made-up stuff. Um, yes, I'm going to so, call it the micro moon because it's the so, smallest one of the year.
1: So is this a blue moon, Chris? Because this is uh commonly referred to as a blue moon in, in the media to two full moons in one month.
0: Yeah. And that originates, if I recall correctly, I think it was like in the 1950s or 60s, or maybe in the 40s, something like that. Sky and Telescope wrote this article and they kind of goofed it up and uh, really what a, a yeah, they goofed it up and had something with some sort of farmer's almanac picking up too. But I think it originated from Sky and Telescope. But anyway, yeah, it, it became this common um, language that the blue moon is the second full moon uh, in a month when this occurs. And it doesn't occur very often. Now, <laughs> the actual blue moon that, that they were supposed to be referring to is the result of volcanic ash in the atmosphere, causing this bluish cast to the moon um and it's a very rare event and i have seen it um during the i think it was during like the 90s um it was just around the time when i was getting into astronomy there was a lot of volcanic ash and i did see one of these blue moons exceptionally rare because the the material needs to be very very high in the atmosphere and and it's and it is kind of blue-ish it's not like super blue but uh, has sort of a bluish cast to it and uh, since that time that we haven't had as as many ball volcanic eruptions. So, uh, but yeah, now the common vernacular is the two full moons in a month, which seems to happen, you know, probably a couple times a year or something like that, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. is now referred to as, as a blue moon. But for the most part, I actually don't think that, that most, uh, normal people are, are recognizing, uh, two full moons in a month. And really there's not much that can be seen. It's just an alignment of when the full moon occurs, uh, on or about the first and then the, the next one occurs you know within that same month it's really not that much of an event because the full moons um always occur within moments of like 28 and a half days from each other so it's not really that that big a deal yeah for sure
1: for sure Right on. Well, I did look up uh, any potential comets that might want to uh, have some focus from us. But in October, I wasn't able to find any comets that really stand out in terms of brightness or, or, you know, large size or anything like that. So, you know, that can always change, but I'm not expecting anything this month. Uh, which is kind of standard you know the the neowise experience is not a common thing in fact that's a very rare thing um, mm-hmm. however occasionally we do get some you know comets in the magnitude 8 or 9 range that are worth looking at occasionally yeah. but uh, nothing to really report on for october um, but whenever we do this, you know, um, what to observe this month episode, I do a little research and I like to see what some of the online lists are suggesting as interesting <laughs> objects to look at. And I, uh, you know, I, I thought it's worth mentioning cause I don't know how far this is proliferated, but I saw a list that said Iris is at opposition in October. and this is Iris- an Asteroid? Well, this is a dwarf planet dwarf uh, planet okay the second largest one in our solar system, the largest okay. being pluto um, what 's interesting about Eris is it 's the most massive uh, dwarf planet, um, Pluto being the second most massive so um, but it's it 's so far out there that it 's magnitude eighteen point seven so,
0: so this, so where this do list, they have this? Like, let me just grab my Hubble Space Telescope. And I mean, you'd need like a 25 inch telescope to yeah, really- at least, yeah.
1: A 25 inch would only and, and and a 25 inch, it would still look like a really dim star, yeah. You know?
0: Um,
1: so it was a that it was funny to me because the list had a lot of the objects that we just covered off, you know, the the orinids. Uh, I'll the look at that when the
0: full moon is out
1: yeah but it did say it did say iris will require a telescope well not I, I just want everybody if anybody else reads this uh don't don't think any old telescope will show you iris uh you will need like chris like what you just said uh you know at least a 25 inch telescope like which a is massive
0: gigantic i guess somebody could try to photograph it but even yeah. photographing down into the 18th magnitude is going to require like i i don't know like a like you're, it's going to take some work, right? Like it's going to be oh, yeah. like an eight or a 10 inch minimum, I would imagine with really dark skies. So.
1: Yeah. And you know, if you were to actually see this thing, it would almost be like an observation of Pluto. It would just look like a star. Yeah. And What you would have to do is draw the star field and then come back in a week or two to see if what you suspected to be Eris moved in, re- in relation uh, to that star field, because there's just, you're not going to resolve a disc or anything at, at that, uh, at that distance. I'm just trying to see how far it is from us actually. And
0: yeah, well, I I think that is sort of the difference between like maybe our podcast and, and others and other things people might read online is we can kind of recognize what's visible and, and what isn't. And I think sometimes when um, people are just using like astronomical software to generate the lists, it's just grabbing Things almost at random, and then spitting them out, and then, you know, sometimes if people don't don't realize that an eighteenth magnitude object of any sort is is going to be too uh, faint to see, that, uh, um, you know, that that just doesn't get conveyed properly, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm pretty sure that it's not on too many lists out there, but um, just in Some, case, sometimes, is,
0: sometimes they catch on, many. and then you see it everywhere, right? It's like, yeah, you know. You'd have, a, you'd have a better shot and easier shot of seeing the moons of, of Mars, which which I do know one person who has seen.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great point, right? Uh, the, the mini Martian moons would probably be a, a, a more attainable observation, which is a very hard observation.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. So what do you look at? Um, for me, I'm really looking forward to Mars. This is really going to be my Mars month. Um, how about you, Shane?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, if I look at anything else, um, it'll just be because I'm need a, a short break from Mars, but, um, pretty much every minute that I'm at the eyepiece, um, I'll be looking at Mars.
0: Yeah. Cause you need to wait for those good moments. And even on the nights when I was out looking at Mars, I would go to Venus and then back to Mars and then go to M42 and the sort of Orion and then go back to Mars. And I never did improve, but I did some other, other observing and, and that's kind of how my observing is going to go. I think I'll, I'll take a look at the Pleiades next time you were talking about that in our last podcast. So uh, yeah, that sounds good. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm good. I think that's, uh, that's a nice list of uh, sort of what's happening in the nighttime sky for October of 2020. Uh, do you have anything else to add to the Sheen?
1: One quick thing I'll add, and we mentioned it before, but um, an interesting observing technique that I found actually has, you know, it has worked for me and I want to continue it, but uh, and I'll use this on Mars and that's to start off with uh, like an extreme magnification on the telescope and just observe uh, for 30 minutes or 60 minutes with really, really high magnifications and then back it off. Um, I do feel like I'm able to see more detail on the planet when I do that. Um, even just looking up at like the moon when it's in the sky, after having done that, I feel like I'm seeing more surface detail on the moon, naked eye. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll experiment with some observing techniques as well with Mars this month, just to see if there's ways to tease out some more detail and, and mix it up with some filters as well to see how,
0: how all of that impacts the view. Cool. Well, that sounds awesome. Well, yeah. thanks. Thanks so much, Shane.
1: Thank you, Chris. And, uh, thank you to everybody for listening.
0: And how can people stay in touch with us? Oh, uh, we're on Twitter. We are at actual
1: astronomy. Um, you can leave reviews on any of the podcast apps and you can also email us, uh, actualastronomy at gmail.com. We and we'll receive... try to
0: do, we'll try to do a show. I think you were saying yeah. before, we will try to do a show on, on emails that we've received.
1: Yeah. We've received some really good feedback and some really interesting questions um, that we will address.
0: Cool. All right. Well, thanks again.
1: Yeah. Thank you. All right. Bye.